From the Brooklyn Paper Building in beautiful downtown Brooklyn, this is Brooklyn Paper Radio on a rainy, miserable Tuesday afternoon. I'm your host, Vince Maselli, editor here at the Brooklyn Paper. And I have Eric Hercules on the board today. Or maybe not. Johnny? Jimmy? Jimmy? Johnny? Well, he's here. There it is. Oh, the sound's out. Can you fade that? We're doing it. We're doing it live, doing Tony. It live. We're doing it live, Tony. It's happened again. I, my favorite way to live life is live. So by the seat of the pants. You just gotta let whatever happens happen. We just gotta. We can't. We have to do it. Yeah. All right. Who's on the show today, Tony? Tell us who's supposed uh, to be on the show. So, Let's so, see if it works out. So we would love to have a conversation with uh, Brooklyn Heights State Senator Brian Kavanaugh following the very, very, very exciting news that. The state. Now he's a new guy. He's a new guy. He was, he was nominated in a special primary, or a special primary election uh-huh. last fall after Daniel Squadron resigned. He's been up in Albany a few months, and from the looks of it, he's already pushing for major change, like Ooh. authorizing design build on the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, which the. Governor or the the Albany passed a budget allowing uh, this weekend, which is very exciting. We're going to allow that to happen. That's going to happen. There, it's going to save lives. They say that is going to happen. It's going to save lives. It's going to ta- save time, and it's going to save money. And but most importantly, lives. Most importantly, lives, because the triple cantilever won't crumble. I'm afraid to drive on it, Tony. It. On you my way be. here, to, I got stuck in traffic on the way here. The last place I want to be is on the triple cantilever. I thought you were arrested. Um well, that, you didn't show up on time, which made me nervous, but I'm glad that that is that not what That seems to be what happens with most radio personalities when they don't show up for work. They tend to get arrested, but not me. Well, our guest, who we hope will still be at the other line end of the line when we call, did say it's a victory for not only Brooklynites, but Staten Islanders like yourself and others who use the expressway and drive on it every day. Getting yes. design build approved. Okay. Who, what do you do? Eric looks like he's working here. What's he doing? I'm sorry. Jimmy. Johnny. I'm hearing an echo, Johnny. I got a little echo. I think we wanted to bring in Julianne Cuba. She wrote the story. Julianne Cuba, who's written the book practically on design build by now. Um, You've got her. We're going to call her in. You know her extension? Wow. It's It's a tough one this week. Is that Cuba? The perks of doing it live. That's what happens when you do it live. Sometimes it doesn't go as, as well as you'd planned it. Hey, a lot of our readers want to, you know, see how the sausage is made. This is it, folks. Hello. Hey, there. Can you come in here? Okay. Thanks. That did not sound good at all. So don't put it on speaker. That was not State Senator Brian Kavanaugh. That was Julianne Cuba. She's going to come in because she wrote the story on this. Yes, she's written several stories. She's followed it. Very, very closely, and can probably speak better to it than us, and maybe even some lawmakers. Yeah, you guys on Albany. that side by the microphone. Here comes Julianne Cuba. Now, how long have you been a reporter here, Cuba? Um, for two years. Two years? Yeah. Oh my God! Wow. I tell you, they grow up so fast. I believe it. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Do I need She's this? growing right. You can put her on our eyes. Yeah. All right, I think we should try we should try to call Senator Kavanaugh um, who hopefully is taking Don't a little put bit it of on a break. Speak. Eric, you put it on speaking and screw everything up. Just dial. <laughs> there you go. It's some dialing music. I watched uh, Sebastian Maniscalco last night. I don't know who that is. He's a comedian. He's funny. Oh, the phone's is ringing. Is he funny? He is. The phone is ringing. Hey, how you doing? Uh, this is uh, Vince DiMasselli calling from Brooklyn Paper Radio. We had an appointment with the state yeah, senator today. Second. All right, that's great. He's doing it live, too, it sounds like. I love this. You know what I love? they got great hold music. we got to work on this. Very soothing. I like the DCPI hold music. Oh, yeah. Do you like it better than What's State that? Senator Brian Kavanaugh's hold music? I do. What is it? Is it like the People's Court? 
Brian bum, bum. Oh, is that the State Senator Brian Kavanaugh? It is indeed. Hey, how are you doing? This is Vince DiMaselli, editor of the Brooklyn Paper. I want to welcome you to Brooklyn Paper Radio. Thank you so much. All right, you're on the air. We're on the air live. We're doing it live. Fantastic. <laughs> we're here with uh, Brooklyn. <laughs> we're here with Tony Rotuno. Hello, Senator. And, Hi, Tony. And of course, Julianne Cuba. Hi. Hi, Julianne. You see that? See how it all works. All right, listen, you're new up there. This is the first time you're going through the whole budget process. And obviously we had some big news this weekend about the triple candy. We want to talk about that. But just tell me what it was like. What, you know, how, how, did, how did you get through all this? Was this crazy or what? Yeah, I mean, look, I've been in the assembly for 11 years, so I've been through the, process, the budget process from a very different perspective. Uh, but uh, obviously being in the Senate, which is so closely divided between the Republicans and the Democrats, and being on the Democratic side... Uh, where you have sort of less direct access to what's going on is, is makes it challenging. But, um, you know, I think we got some things done. And, uh, you know, I'll maybe talk a little later about things that I wish we had gotten done. Well, that was the, que- that, that was the question I actually wanted to ask was, how is it different from the state Senate side than it is from the assembly side? Well, like I, th- like I think each house plays a similar role. But, again, it's the, the process is heavily driven by the majority of each house. And, of course... Uh, in the Senate, we currently have uh, the Republican conference uh, controlling uh, the majority. So, uh, you know, in the minority, you're more likely to be in a position of advocating, making sure people in your community are advocating, and, you know, just talking directly with your colleagues and with the governor's office and, and with your colleagues in the assembly to make sure that something like uh, the BQE uh, design bill is a priority. So, uh, you know, whereas on the assembly side, I was more likely to be, you know, working with my colleagues to figure out what our uh, negotiating position would be with respect to the others here. It's a little bit more of an outsider role. Um, but, you know, obviously you can exert influence on the process, and uh, that's what I did. Was there, was there anybody up there that was against this prod, this this particular portion of the budget or allowing this to happen? Because it seems like this is pretty much a no-brainer, and, and what it just came down to was maybe a little tug-of-war between uh, de Blasio and, uh, and uh, uh, Governor Cuomo. Is that correct? Well, look, there, there are a lot of... Uh, design build is something that has been progressing in various places for a while, and uh, you know we have extended design build authority for various projects, starting with some state agencies. And there were some additional state projects proposed for this, as well as a bunch of city projects. So I think in each case, uh, you need to make the case that this is a big priority, that it is time-sensitive, as this project is, and that uh, giving design build authority will, will uh, make a meaningful difference in how the project works. In this case, of course, we know that it'll save at least $100 million. It'll accelerate the project by two years, which has the effect of keeping trucks off our local roads. Uh, so, you know, we need Big to make concern. that case. Um, and we got uh, support early on from some of our Republican colleagues. Uh, but in order to do the deal, you know, to ensure that it was included in the budget, we needed to negotiate right up to the end. Now, State Senator, I'm gonna, I want to drill down on that question Vince asked, just because, you know, in reading a lot about the process, it, it did seem it took a lot of demands and rallies and 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 you know, backroom deals to get it through. And it's, it's really sometimes hard to find information that, that, that explains why people wouldn't want it. And, and I've read some places that it might be a union thing or that people are concerned that if you allow one firm, what Design Build does, and correct me if I'm wrong, is allows one firm to bid for two phases of a project, the design and the construction. And some people are concerned, opponents are concerned that an inexperienced company might get a, a contract to do one of those things that it maybe doesn't do very well. Is that something that people, is that one of the main like logistical concerns behind this? Or is it, is it a union thing that, that sort of generates opposition? You know, what I, are, I would say both of those have been factors sort of generically with respect to design build. I mean, there are, um, I think, uh, you know, you, unions are legitimately concerned sometimes that uh, there may be companies that could win a design build uh, contract that aren't using union labor. They would raise questions about whether the people doing the work are qualified and properly trained and their safety concerns. Um, and in, a, in addition, I think that, you know, design, the current 
law, the sort of default laws for design, bid, build. And the idea, I think, originally was that you get a better outcome when you do design, bid, build, because you contract with one company to work out all the details about what you want and to design the project. And then once it's properly designed, you bid it out, and then you get more competitive bids for the building process. So that was the original idea, and that's why that is the default process in the current law. What has happened is, over the years, uh, as these projects have gotten larger and more complex, and as you've gotten more and more firms with the capacity to both design and build the project, um, you get the argument is, like in an instance like this, where speed is really important, you get a quicker result, uh, in this case, two full years off the project timeline. You also, in some cases, can, can ask the uh, potential bidders to be creative about what they're going to do and how they're going to do to achieve a particular objective. I don't think that's a big factor in this case, although there may be some, you know, there may be some uh, clever ways this project can be phased to reduce the time frame or reduce the impact. Um, but the, the big thing is that over the years, most large-scale public projects done by large entities, just experience has told us that they work better and more smoothly and that whatever benefits you get from having the design done before the before it's bid out are outweighed by having a single entity uh, both design it and, and uh, build it. You also, by the way, avoid a situation where there's a dispute between who, the people who designed it and the people who build it. Sure. So, in, you know, if you have design build, less cooks you in pay the kitchen. Somebody to design it, and then you're paying somebody else to build it, and there, a problem comes up in the in the plans or in the you know the way it's supposed to work, and the you know, the builder is saying, well, it's the designer's fault it wasn't properly designed, and the designer is saying, no, it was properly designed, the builder has just not properly anticipated this problem, and that can add time to the project because that dispute has to be worked out. It also sometimes can add real expense. Got so it. all things considered, this is, this is a clear example of a project that ought to be done through design-build, and, you know, we're happy to have made the case and gotten it done. Now... The other question that I think is on uh, certainly on all of our minds um, and, and, and a lot of Brooklynites is in, in your house's draft budget, design, the authorization for a design build was inextricably tied to putting armed cops in every city school, a proposal that was um, also introduced as a separate bill by Bay Ridge Senator Marty Golden and, and Simka Felder from Midwood and, and a colleague you know from Staten Island. Do you have any inside information on how those two, how that package deal unraveled in the final bill? Was it just sheer opposition, or how did you know how did one get to the other um, with regard to that you know packaging design build and and the guns and or armed cops in schools? You know, look, the budget negotiations are a complicated process. Uh, people are entitled during that process to try to link link different issues uh, where they care about them. Uh, and, uh, you know, in that in this particular circumstance, I think we I have some colleagues who sincerely believe that uh, having additional uh, police in schools will help with public safety. Um, I happen to, you know, also be championing a very different approach to uh, gun violence prevention and school safety. Um, but you know, I think that there there was a there was a proposal to link them. Uh, I made that I made the point very publicly on the floor of the Senate that I didn't think that was appropriate. And you know, during the course of negotiations, emphasized that to my colleagues and uh, to anyone who would listen um, that we needed design build and we needed it in a context where uh, it was going to be adopted as part of the budget. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to talk about how those conversations played out. Uh, you know, some of them were like personal conversations with colleagues. Um, but I will say that uh, the wide range of advocates that uh, fought for design build made a huge difference. Um, you know, Peter Bray and the, and the uh, Brooklyn Heights Association and, uh, you know, the other community folks. And, you know, we had the uh, American Automobile Association, the Truckers Association, and the uh, Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce, and the New York City Partnership. I think all were emphasizing that this is something we needed to get done. Um, you don't get it done by linking it to really to other really complicated, controversial proposals. So at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a minor caveat that uh, the city has to work with the State Department of Transportation as they do the contracting, but that's, you know, routine, and the city is comfortable with that arrangement. So I think all, all told, it was a win for everybody. And, you know, I don't want to 
you know, relitigate the arguments we had to make during the course of it. But I think it's great that uh, my colleague uh, Marty Golden and uh, everybody else got on board. And I would say I would say Joanne Simon uh, in the assembly played a big role in ensuring that the assembly was very strong on this right from the beginning. Yeah, we had Joanne on the show a couple of weeks back, and uh, yeah, she was very much obviously pushing for this, and and basically predicted that it was going to happen. Also predicted at some point that we're going to get a tunnel in, uh, th- you know, to replace the Gowanus Canal. Not so sure about that. Was that on the agenda up there? Not that I, w- I will say that's a little bit outside of my district, uh, <laughs> but uh, that's t- t- I'm not. Uh, I can't. I can't speak to where. That you haven't heard any whispers about that. Not. I haven't. I, I've heard. I've heard. I mean, perhaps literally whispers, but not in Albany. So <laughs> I don't. I, I can't comment on that today. Yeah. So what happens now? Does the state have any, um, I guess, say going forward with this project, or is now just the city take over? Uh, like yeah, in terms this is of a like project. Uh, you know, you know, the state had previously uh, had previously uh, been a participant in this project. The state DOT. Uh, was going to do this a few years ago, um, but they had, you know, they had kind of shelved the project. And I think the city DOT, uh, to its great credit, had recognized this as a critical project that they needed to get started on. So at this point, it is this is a fully funded uh, city uh, project, and now they are in a position to get their, you know, they were waiting on the basic question of whether they were going to be able to do this with design build. My understanding is that they will be going forward now with releasing uh, the initial uh, documents to uh, get some qualified contractors to bid and uh, and get the, get the process moving. And again, the state legislation that was included in the budget does have a role for state DOT to review those documents at a couple of points in the process. But from my conversations, uh, the city does not believe that is going to be any obstacle. That they that's a routine thing that the city and the state uh, DOT would do uh, all all the time. So the state's going to do some checking at some point during the process. But otherwise, this is now a city project where the city is allowed to use this sped up design build system, and hopefully we can see start stuff start moving forward within the next few years. I'm guessing because th- uh, this yeah, is a this is a huge project. Yeah, and I, I would say, look, this is this is this is an important uh, victory for the community. Um, it was really critical that we get design built. Um, this is not the end of the conversation about how to minimize the impact on our community. Uh, this design build is not a cure-all. Um, it is a necessary component of doing this project right. Uh, but this is a massive project. We know there are going to be negative impacts on the communities uh, that it's going through. Uh, so this is a big step forward. But you know, we're basically ready to get back to work now. Uh, working with the relevant agencies uh, to ensure that uh, you know the impacts of the projects are mitigated and we're not uh, doing unnecessary damage to our neighborhoods as we go along. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how they're going to how they're going to get those cars through the neighborhoods, get the trucks through the neighborhoods while they while they're doing this project. How it's going to work out, but it's always interesting. I've lived through basically the reconstruction of the Gowanus Canal. During the, uh, I'm sorry, the Gowanus uh, Expressway during the last few, during the last ten years, where they literally replaced the entire highway one lane at a time. With the, tra- it's it's incredible. How they, we've seen how they how they've put together the uh, the new um, the new uh, Cascasco Bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, how quickly it went up. A and design build project. That was a design build project. Yeah, so my only concern with all this is after what, what after watching what happened in Florida uh, with the, with that pedestrian bridge, is, is that something we need to be concerned about, or, or what are we doing to make sure that something like that doesn't happen here? Well, look, you know, the, I think that the city is being proactive here. It is clear that this, uh, you know, the, the, the roadway as it stands now continues to be safe for use, and uh, but they're being, you know, they're they're proactively uh, stepping in and making sure that they're doing the rehabilitation. You know, this is more than just repairs, right? They're going to build, they're going to rebuild it, and they're going to build it as a modern highway up to modern uh, safety standards, including a shoulder uh, and, uh, you know, the other, like the proper lane widths and all the things that make for a safe modern highway. Um, that's going to take time, but it's fortunate that, Again, the city has identified the funds early, and they are, uh, you know, moving forward with the project now. Um, and we, you know, we want to avoid, we want to avoid disruption. We want this design build will permit them to 
have no point uh, where the roadway has to be taken entirely out of service, which should allow those trucks you were mentioning before to remain you know, on the highway rather than on the local streets throughout the project. So, but there will be, you know, there will be disruption and there will be, um, you know, and this, I think people in our community have been, uh, you know, respectful of the fact that this is a necessary project to keep the, uh, you know, to keep that this very unusual structure, particularly the cantilever section, um, properly maintained and, and in good order. So, so that's what we're doing. It'd be nice to see if they can get the uh, the the entrance ramp at Atlantic Avenue in, in this process. Make it more than zero feet, because right now that that is actually the official distance you have according to the state of New York. How much space you have to get on the highway at Atlantic Avenue hmm. is yeah, zero are, feet. There are some remarkably, remarkably tight uh, squeezes in the, in, as the as the thing is currently configured. Yeah, so I think there are there are plans to try to address those. In some cases, uh, you know, they haven't gotten they haven't sort of bored down to that level of detail yet. Uh, but yeah, there are there was there was serious talk about. Uh, this being an improvement for drivers, for pedestrians, and you know, obviously for everybody that depends on on that roadway to get uh, people and goods where they need to go. And Tony knows, and Julianne knows. I say this all the time: infrastructure projects. When you live in New York City, that's par for the course. It's going to happen. Necessary. There's going to be noise. There's going to be construction. And as long as it's reasonable and done right, there's really you know nothing we can do about it. You know, you don't want. I mean, people are always going to complain about things, but as long as everything is you know on budget and on time, you know we're not going to go nuts about it. But once we see things, it's a lot of kilter, Tony. A little off off center that's when askew. that's when we tend to make some noise so that that yeah, and, and i think we're, we're one of the ways we avoid that is we ensure that there's a proper uh process for the community to uh be involved in discussions about how it's going to work and when it's going to work and what the what the impacts will be and so you know i think again to its credit the city has stepped out uh and had some you know early sessions where people get a, get their handle uh, get a handle on what this is going to be and I'd also say, you know, you and, uh, you know, the press have done a great job of getting the word out. Uh, you know, Julianne's uh, coverage has been terrific. And, um, you know, I think people really do have a sense of what's coming. And I think they're ready to engage in the next set of questions, which is about, you know, exactly how the thing is phased and what the restrictions are and when the construction can occur and, uh, you know, all those kinds of questions, which will improve, hopefully improve the quality of life and yet also, you know, keep the project uh, moving along so you know, it's done sometime in our lifetimes, uh, and certainly before that, that date in the mid-2020s when, uh, when it would become a problem in terms of uh, keeping trucks on the road. Well, you know, as far as the budget goes, there's some other stuff going on up there that they were talking about. Apparently, you know, before the budget was passed, Governor Cuomo said congestion pricing time has come, but apparently it didn't come. What happened there? Well, look, we got we got one uh, we got one piece in place, which is this uh, surcharge on um, on on the uh, you know for hire vehicles for the the Uber style uh, you know transportation network companies. Um, we that you know we've got some real money for transit, but obviously we got a lot more work to do. Um, and there's you know this there was also uh, you know finally an agreement to get some city money um, to cover some of the transit costs that that dispute we'd had with between the city and the state about. Um, how much uh, some of the short-term MTA costs would be uh, done? But look, it's a big, it's a big uh, deficiency in what we did that we did come up with a comprehensive solution uh, to fund the transit system, whether that be through congestion pricing or through you know any of the other mechanisms uh, that were proposed. We need we need a dedicated funding source, and we need to make sure that we bring that system up to a good state of repair because you know these delays people are experiencing are you know increasingly getting to, you know, really a threat to the basic way people uh, live their lives, how they get to work and how they get to school and how they get to all the other places they need to be. So that's a, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a problem. Um, we had a few other uh, real successes. We got $250 million for the public housing system. Uh, that's less than I and some other people have been pushing for, but I think it's a significant achievement. Um, we actually got design build for a couple of other projects, including uh, construction that may be necessary for the Brooklyn Detention Center uh, is as part of the city's plan to close Rikers Island. And we also got design builds for the Housing Authority. Um, and we, we, I think we got a significant achievement in updating our tax code to resist uh, some of the damage that the Trump tax plan will do uh, by targeting New Yorkers. Um, so that, that will allow, in some cases, uh, taxpayers to avoid uh, losing some of those um, 
some of the deductibility of their state and local taxes. Um, so there were some there were some good things, but um, you know, obviously there were a lot of items on the table, and, and it was a tough year for negotiations. And I think we uh, we still have a lot of work to do. Right. Well, I got one for you because now you you're going through all these things that are happening out there. The first thing that jumped to my mind was the you know the New York Post did a story this week on you know how much pork is in this budget. It was a front page story in the Post, so, and you know you see the amount of th- uh, the amount of money going to different groups and stuff like that. So let me ask you this: in, in your opinion, what's pork, and what is a, a reasonable you know contributions from the state to to uh, a, a, an organization, be it a charity or be it you know the 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 Caribbean parade or something like that. What's what's the difference? Look, I, I would say you know pork is is in the eye of the beholder. Um, I think it is problematic the extent to which uh, thing items are you know lined items to the budget, especially the ones that come in the last minute. I mean, one of the problems with our budget process in Albany is that a lot of the negotiations are behind closed doors, and then the bills are printed and voted on in very short order. So it's very often the case that legislators and others are scrambling to figure out what's in these bills. Um, we had a long talk on the floor of the Senate about a particular uh, allocation for a golf tournament in uh, Binghamton. And, uh, you know, it's a $3 million allocation. During the course of the debate, it, be- it became clear that it supposedly spread over five years, uh, I think six years, actually, So, it's, but it's still, you know, half a million dollars a year toward a golf tournament, which looks like a fairly high-end event. And, and uh, golf, by the way, is a walk in the great outdoors ruined. <laughs> I'm just pointing I'm that out. for myself, but I know there are probably some of your listeners who are very enthusiastic, so I'm not taking a position on golf per se. Uh, but, you know, the, the Binghams and legislators made, tried to make the case that this is like a critical... Uh, economic development uh, opportunity in Binghamton, and you know uh, the economic opportunities there are not the same as they may be in New York City. Um, you know, that, from my perspective, that kind of thing should be looked at more skeptically than some of the other things. You know, we got money in the budget for some of our local settlement houses and to to expand these programs that are called naturally occur occurring retirement communities, where that allow people to stay in their homes and uh, get the services they need to live. Uh, in the communities they've been living in for a long time, or school-based health clinics, uh, you know, we line-itemed in, and that was a very important priority, uh, you know, including some of our own schools in the neighborhood, uh, like, uh, you know, the Brooklyn New School and uh, Brooklyn D- Secondary School for Collaborative Studies on Henry Street. So, you know, again, those are line-items, too, and I would not call those pork. I would call those essential services. Um, but, you know, it's. I think that legislators have an obligation to be frugal to make sure that each thing that we're allocating money for uh, is appropriate and that the taxpayers are getting real value um, and that they're providing real services. And I do think that uh, a more open and transparent budget process would probably lead to better outcomes in that regard. Yeah, so if I'm getting this straight, the golf is pork, but the you know the stuff for the new school and stuff that's all very much important to us. That's beef. again these are these are yeah these are <laughs> these are these are school based based health centers to ensure that uh, children in our schools have access to basic health services that they might otherwise have difficulty uh, accessing. And yeah, in my perspective, that's you know I I I call that uh, core services. But I you know I respect I, the the reason I brought it up is that as I said at the beginning, uh, these are these are value judgments that we make, and I'm making a value judgment that that uh, service is valuable. And I joined some of my colleagues in uh, making sure it got in the budget. Um, you know, people need to judge. You know, a high-end health tournament, uh, hi- a high-end uh, golf tournament, tournament supported, uh, sponsored by Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, and a bunch of other private corporations in Binghamton. You know, I and I, and I, I, the reason I know about that is it was debated on the floor. I actually have not come to a strong conclusion about whether that. You know, I suppose if that's a tournament that won't otherwise happen, and as a result, people lose jobs in Binghamton, then maybe that's a legitimate expenditure. But you know, I think we should look uh, skeptically when the recipients and you know and the beneficiaries are uh, wealthy uh, private businesses as opposed to you know school children who need health services. Hmm. But you know that's a that's a that's a value uh, judgment on my part. <laughs> I know we, we you talked about schools there for a second. I got I got to make it a little bit personal because I got to figure all this stuff out. Um, my son was recently accepted into a private school. Now. According to our president, and according to the new the new budget signed by the Congress, which I know has nothing to do with you, but 
the 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 cost for private schools up to ten thousand dollars a year will become tax deductible, I guess, on your federal tax plan. So, uh, you know, as far as your federal taxes go, now I don't know how that's going to affect anything on the state level. Now, this is something that's you know near and dear to a lot of people. I mean, if you're paying for a private school, first of all, it's giving you a tax incentive to send your kid to a private school. And uh, second of all, you know the, well, the people that send their kids to private schools, I'm guessing, have the money to do it. Do they really need that tax break? Um, and thirdly, well, is is that something that's going to happen in the state? Is it like how does that work? And I mean, you're up in Albany; you would know better than me. <laughs> I have not heard talk about adding that particular uh, you know deduction uh, to the to our state tax code. Um, I would also caution you if you're depending on a tax uh, break in the federal code put in my Trump administration. I'm, I'll, I'll confess I'm not particular, I'm not familiar with the particular terms of this one, but I will say that uh, many of the uh, tax breaks that are intended to be, uh, to benefit individuals uh, expire and are not quite what they're billed to be. So I would take a close look at that before I uh, enroll my child in a school and expect to depend on it for many years to come. Um, but no, I think, I think that uh, you know, it's important that we uh, adequately fund our, pu our public schools. I, I don't think we need enormous incentives uh, for students to go to private schools, um, but I do think there is some value in being fair to uh, private school families and uh, parochial school families. Um, and so, you know, I think that is an ongoing conversation we'll have. And I think, uh, you know, we do provide, we provide some direct subsidies to private schools in New York um, for services that uh, we require them to, to offer so there is you know there is a there is an interaction between the state budget and the city budget and the and the private schools um, but I don't you know I don't there we've had conversations in the past about uh, proposals that were intended to kind of wholesale subsidize uh, private school tuition and those have not um, you know those have not gone anywhere so far in New mm -hmm. York Another thing with regard to schools, and, and it's a little bit of a backpedal uh, on something you mentioned earlier, um, but, you know, one of the things a lot of local students have been very vocal about lately is obviously gun gun law reform um, with the walkouts and or, uh, last month and then the March for Our Lives, uh, you know, just two weeks ago. And you had mentioned, you know, maybe uh, putting an armed cop in every city school wasn't necessarily your vision for gun law reform or school safety, but um, you said you had other ideas there, and, and I wonder what, what those are and, and what, if any, maybe made it in the budget, or if they didn't, you know, where, where they're going to show up next. Yeah, so, so I, I founded a uh, uh, national coalition of state legislators that work on this issue in every state um, and have spent a lot of time... Uh, pushing New York State uh, laws in the right direction to keep the guns out of uh, the wrong hands, and also working on this in, with legislators across the country. Um, and it is clear to me that you know New York has some of the strongest gun laws in the country. Uh, we have the third lowest rate of uh, gun-related death per capita in America, um, and that's partly because of strong laws, and partly because of some smart policing, and partly because some. Uh, programs that we have where we intervene directly in communities to reduce violence. Uh, but there's a lot more we can do. And um, I was part of a coalition, a, a pretty broad coalition of people that pushed for a particular provision that we think would save a lot of lives, and that is called, uh, create something called an extreme risk protection order. This is something where a family member or law enforcement can go to a court and present evidence that someone is uh, likely to harm themselves or others and have that person's uh, access to guns uh, suspended. Uh, and there's all kinds of due process protections uh, to ensure that it can be, you know, that the, the order can be challenged. And, um, but, the, but the point there is that there are many instances where somebody is a danger to themselves or others, and law enforcement or family members or other people close to that person uh, realize that and have evidence of that, but there's nothing we can do often until uh, something tragic happens. So I, I, there's a very broad coalition of people called for that to be included in the budget. I included all of the big national uh, gun violence prevention organizations and our own uh, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence here in New York. Um, and then we also got the district, all five district attorneys from the city and also the district's attorneys from Nassau and Suffolk and Westchester and the Mental Health Association and the National Alliance on Mental Illness, um, the police commissioner of Nassau County, um, 
whole bunch of folks called for us to do that in the budget, given the urgency uh, and you know the, the awareness we have of this continuing epidemic that came out of Florida. And yet, that's something that uh, the Republicans in the Senate uh, rejected as part of the negotiations. Um, we did do a bill uh, late Saturday night that increases protections for people uh, who are experiencing domestic violence. Um, and it basically says that people convicted of certain misdemeanor domestic violence offenses uh, are prohibited from possessing or purchasing guns. And that is a, that's a significant step forward, and we were glad to get that done. Um, but it's not, you know, there's a lot more we can do. Um, and so let me, let me stop there. But uh, if, if uh, your listeners are interested in following up with that, they should contact us because we're, we're, it's going to be a continuing push uh, into June. Noted. Um, just going back to, like, the negotiations in the budget, when people say that it's private deals, you know, like three men in a room, who are those three men? Well, when people say three men in a room, they are typically referring to the majority leader of the Senate, who is uh, Senator Flanagan of Long Island, the Republican majority leader, and uh, Carl Hasty, who is the Assembly uh, Speaker and the Governor. Um, there are other people influencing this process. You know, there's the Independent Democratic Conference, uh, which is led by Jeff Klein, who sometimes uh, seems to be in the room, and the leader of my conference, Andrew Stewart Cousins. Uh, you know, was is a very significant advocate for a lot of the uh, a lot of things we just mentioned that are not included in the budget. Um, and uh, you know, I think that we, you know, people in the Senate, Democrats in the Senate, at least, would very much uh, like to see, like to have seen her in the room, uh, particularly when you're having conversations about things like, uh, you know, sexual harassment law. Um, but more generally, uh, you know, this process where uh, leaders, you know, go behind closed doors and try to figure it out and then come out with a budget, it's not, it's not as simple as it's often made out to be. There are numerous conversations, and each of the leaders is talking to the members of their conference, and there are, you know, members of the public and lots of other people advocating during the course of the thing. Uh, but, you know, the process is more closed than uh, it should be, and... Um, you know, I, I and others would like to see it more open and certainly would like to see, uh, like to have seen the Democrats in the Senate, uh, you know, uh, play a big, play a bigger role than we were able to in this budget process. Right. And going back to one of the things that was not included in this budget was early voting. What happened there? Uh, again, we, this early voting is something I've personally advocated for for a number of years, including, uh, you know, passing, the Assembly passed my bill on early voting for the last couple of years. And uh, the Assembly once again uh, passed early voting and included it in its budget resolution, and the governor uh, included it in his executive budget proposal. Uh, the big new thing this year is, in the past, we've heard people object to early voting because it might, um, the cost of it might fall on localities. So people have talked about it being an unfunded mandate. Uh, this year, the governor uh, and the Assembly uh, basically officially agreed to pay pay the cost of it, and the Senate Democrats also had a proposal that we would have paid the cost of it uh, without having, you know, the state pay the cost rather than having the localities do it. Uh, notwithstanding that, uh, the Senate Republicans rejected that. They said at various times that that's something they would discuss, and the discussions can continue, but it was not included in the final budget. Did that answer your question, Julian? Yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Now, you said that sometimes bills just get thrown out there, like they're worked on, you know, three men in a room, four men in a room, four men and a woman in a room, I don't know. You, the, everything gets thrown together, and it's thrown, it's thrown out at you, and you guys don't have time to process it. Do you, what happens when that happens? Do you vote on the bill anyway? Do you, have you ever voted on a bill that you, like, you weren't confident you even knew what it was about? Well, look, you can't, you know, the, the bills come out and then the staff, you know, we have staffers that are expert in each part and they uh, work on the analysis. We, you know, we, our own staffs and, uh, you know, the legislators themselves are reading provisions and we're also getting uh, briefed on various elements of the thing. If you've been paying attention to the negotiations, uh, you, you know, you sort of know what you're looking for and what, what issues have been discussed during the course of the thing, and that's helpful. Uh, but it is the case that, you know, the budget bills in particular um, this year were, were printed 
uh, very soon, uh, you know, in a very short time before the voting occurred. So there was quite a scramble to figure out exactly what's going on in these bills. Um, you know, I think we do a pretty good job of understanding what's, what's at stake, and there's an opportunity to debate the bills on the floor and ask questions. Um, but, yeah, it is, it, is, it is a more closed process than it ought to be. Um, and in particular, if you're going to vote on a $168 billion budget, it would be preferable if the bills you're voting on were printed several days before uh, the votes rather than several hours. Um, but, you know, the legislature has uh, some, and the governor have some history of going right down to the wire, and, you know, there's a, there's a constitutional deadline that the thing be done by midnight on March 31st. Um, in this case, we got it done in the wee hours of Friday night leading into Saturday morning, so technically a few hours Ahead early. Ahead of time. Uh, but, yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not an ideal process, and I think that uh, we would all benefit from uh, more time and a little more sunlight. Yeah. So, how do we how do we change that process? How what needs to happen for for you know everyone complains about it, but nobody does anything about it. It's like the weather. Yeah. It's, look, I, I mean, part of the problem is that people do. Uh, you know, people tend to focus more on outcomes than on process. So, if you like what happens at the last minute and it's in the budget and you're satisfied with it, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about legislators so much as advocates and the general public. So um, I think we would get a better outcome overall if and, and more, you know, and routinely if we had a better process. Uh, but, you know, my biggest qualms about the process we just went through is that uh, I think some key priorities were not included, and we mentioned a few of them just a minute ago. Um, but I do think, you know, I think that, I think that, uh, you know, voters and advocates and, and the press should ask these questions. Like, wh- why is, you know, why are the budget, why are the bills not printed in advance? Why can't we <laughs> see them? And I think that, you know, there ha- there have been a few years where uh, it's been better and more open, where there's been more, uh, you know, more time between printing and voting, and so people can look at them. Uh, in this case, they, they all, all of the bills were printed during the course of Thursday and Friday, and voted on by Friday night into Saturday. I think the assembly finished at 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. Um, but you know, I think I think people should demand that kind of transparency of their elected officials. Um, I don't think there's any magic bullet, and obviously, we have many other people have many other many other things they're demanding of their legislators. Um, but I think that you know, and there are some good advocacy organizations like Citizens Union and others that um, emphasize process, and I think that's important. But um, you know, I think people people who want to see that kind of transparency need to continue to advocate for the notion that not just the outcome but the process is important. As an aside, it sounds like reforming the a budget process is a lot like trying to reform our staff meetings every Thursday. <laughs> that going in, you know, you're you're weary of a three hour meeting and then you come out and you feel so productive that you do the same thing again each week. <laughs> um, there there so is that, a bit of deja vu in this, yeah. Yeah, that outcome based uh, sort of sticking to habit is definitely real. Um, you said like some advocacy groups like Citizens Union and, and the public demanding a more transparent budget process. But is that all it would take or would it take like a constitutional convention to rewrite how you do the actual budget? It would not take a convention per se. Uh, you could change the Constitution and make the rules different, uh, but uh, the you could also just change the process by either, you know, some. I mean, you could theoretically change it by statute, although legislatures and the governor would always be free, would always be free to change statutes. Or you could change the Constitution. The Constitution can be changed though without a convention. Mm-hmm. And of course, we had you know we had voters voted last year not to have a constitutional convention. Uh, so against my endorsement, by the way. That was against my endorsement of the constitutional convention. You were in favor of it. Oh, I, absolutely. I, actually was a, I was a reluctant no on the constitutional convention. I, I shared some of the excitement of some of the good government folks uh, about uh, you know get, enacting progressive change. But at the end of the day, um, I think that the constitutional convention would have been basically a, kind of an ad hoc legislative body uh, temporary and focused on the Constitution, but I don't really, I didn't really believe we'd get different outcomes. Um, if we want to change, it would, you know, that that body would have been subject to the same pressures that the uh, Senate and the Assembly and the Governor are subject to. So I think if we want to change these things, uh, you know, there are opportunities to, um, you know, to change the Constitution if we choose to, or to just, you know, put political pressure on the legislature and the governor to do it differently. The, the risk of a constitutional convention could be a could be permanent legislation for uh, $3 million golf tournaments in Binghamton. 
<laughs> you you could, they'd, they'd write that into the constitution. Um, <laughs> they could, yeah, they could. That could become a, a core, a core uh, obligation of the state in the constitution. <laughs> well, uh, State Senator, we're really glad you took. Uh, we've been on a long time. We're really glad you came out to talk to us. You're clearing some things up for us, which we appreciate. Uh, the obviously the big the big news for us is design build that we're all excited about, or at least we we're, we're hopeful, hopeful yeah. to say to say the least. And uh, I always leave it with if you had anything that we didn't that you wanted to talk about that we we haven't mentioned yet, if you want to do that, you're free to. Otherwise, you could just uh, sign off. But uh, the the mic is yours. No, I appreciate the opportunity to be on and uh, all that we've. I think we've covered a lot of ground. I will say we'll be back in session in two weeks, and the legislative session goes uh, through the middle of June. Uh, so there's a lot more opportunity. Uh, to address some of the issues we've discussed that haven't been addressed. And, you know, there is an election on April 24th, and if Democrats are successful in that election, there's going to be an effort to pull the Democrats in the Senate together and form a majority. Um, and I think with several of these issues, we'll have a different outcome if we're controlling the floor of the Senate. But that's uh, it remains to be seen whether we get that done. I'm somewhat optimistic. But uh, so there's a lot of a lot of activity later in the spring, and maybe we can get on and uh, talk talk about that again sometime. Oh right, well, we look forward to it again. Uh, thanks for coming on. That's State Senator Brian Cavanaugh. He represents Brooklyn Heights and uh, Manhattan, some parts of Manhattan. Yeah, in some of those. In there. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> good. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Take you, care. Senator Cavanaugh. Take care. All right, Eric. There he is. He's done it again. He did it. He did it. He's no longer with us. He's off the phone. Cut the cord. How'd that go, Juliana? Was that okay? Did we do a good job? Yeah, it was great. Talked a lot. A lot. Did, did you answer? Did, were all your questions answered? Yeah, I had one more question that I didn't get a chance to ask. Oh, what was that going to be? It was about one of the language in the budget that said after. Sounds very wonky. It is. So that's why I didn't bring it up. Yeah, that was good. Good. Good call on your part there. Good call, Tony. The wonks want to know. No, I just wanted to. I was going to ask him. You know, the softball. It's. It is his first time representing Brooklynites um, because his assembly district was strictly on Manhattan. So I wanted to know what he's. Yeah, I had no idea about the whole assembly thing. I had no idea about the eh. whole assembly thing. You know, because it's Manhattan. The big leagues now. The big house. The upper house. <laughs> yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or the big borough. Oh, man. The county of Kings. It really is. It really is. So, yeah, I had a tough time getting here. Right. No, I did. No, I had thanks a, to the BQE. I had a tough time getting here, and I did not take the triple cantilever out of fear. That every collapse? Every time I'm pulling up to it, I'm like, should I get off at Atlantic Avenue? Because the Waze app is telling me to go around to Tillery Street. Oh, interesting. But I'm not going to take my life in my hands. I'm going to come up uh, Atlantic Avenue driving slowly. And allowing pedestrians to cross, no matter Always. no matter what the light says, whether they have a head start or not. Although on Atlantic, I'm not sure how many intersections they have the leading pedestrian. In I think they. Path. I think all of them. Safe to say, it's, it, it feels that way. It feels that way. Well, you would know because you. I think of any driver, you pay the most attention. My to arm hurts. From waving pedestrians. Hey, the Demicelli wave. My arm hurts. It's like, what you, I, this, my, my left arm is stronger than my right arm. The muscles the, from That's waving not from people. Editing, folks. Yeah, it's, not, it's, strictly, it's strictly from waving people on. <laughs> Rain, snow, sleet, or hail. You I saw, I saw uh, what do you call this weekend? Did you, uh, did you go to the movies? Oh, Ready Player One. I, re I saw Ready Player One. Julian, did you see it? No, I don't even know what that is. Ready Player One. It's interesting that you don't know what it is because you are a millennial. And Ready Player One is basically a movie for, for Generation Xers like me. That it, if, if you go see this movie, it force feeds popular culture, culture down your throat. I'm not very pop culture savvy. I know. And neither are others of your ilk. Right? Then you should see Ready Player One because you'll be force fed it. You'll be force fed it. So the most exciting moment in the movie for me was at the very end. I don't want to give anything away. I'm not giving anything away. Now, there's all sorts of pop culture references throughout this film. All sorts, right? And, you know... It's chock full. Chock full. Chock full. From, like, every movie that you could imagine They you know that came out between basically 1960 and 19, uh, 1999 is mentioned. And some other ones on top of that. But the, the highlight for me was at the very end, they go into his room as a boy, and he's playing. Do you know what he's playing? I, I think I told you this. You told me this. He's playing 
Do you want me to tell you? You can say it. You can say it. ColecoVision. ColecoVision. What's that? See? Coleco. Do you ever hear the game Donkey Kong? No. It's unbelievable. You've never heard of Donkey Kong? I didn't have any PlayStations or anything like that growing up. Were you not allowed to watch television? It was monitored. It was heavily monitored. I think so, yeah. And where'd you grow up? In Westchester. In we- and you grew up oh, just Further north of north, Westchester. Yeah, just where north we didn't of. Have Did you have you didn't have television up there at all? At all. No. Wow. So you were heavily no, monitored. You weren't allowed to watch television. You didn't have any video games or no, anything. No, I like watched that. television, but no video games or anything like that. You know, Leah, our uh, production man, our art director, what was her title? Director. Something like that. Same thing. She wasn't allowed to watch TV during the week. Wow. Oh, she could only watch it on weekends, and that's why she only knows what happened on um, different strokes and silver spoons. Which Jimmy here, he, he knows. Different strokes and silver spoons? He's nodding his head now. Every Saturday night, you can watch different strokes, silver spoons, and facts of life. No, Facts Life, I think, was on Thursday. It was the NBC lineup. It was huge. Incidentally, that's probably why Lee is one Listen, of the hardest workers I'll t- here. <laughs> I'll tell you the ColecoVision story, but then uh, that will be it, right? So all I wanted uh, in Christmas, on Christmas 1982, when I was 11 years old, was a ColecoVision. Because the ColecoVision, Julian, you know about Atari? No. Can you put your phone down, please? We're talking here. So, you know. She's looking up your references. <laughs> you don't know what Atari is? No. An Atari game system? No, I'm sorry, I don't. It's just crazy. It's just Pong. It's but crazy. I don't think... No, it predates Pong. I mean, no, it doesn't predate Pong. It's post-Pong. Post-Pong. I don't even know what that is. Atari's post-Pong. No. Okay. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to... I'll just do it quick. Pre-Sega. Right? You had Atari, and also the Odyssey 2 by Magnavox, and then you had Intellivision, but Intellivision was only good for like sports games. They didn't have really good action games. Very good sports games. They're baseball. They're bi- horse racing. A lot of fun, right? What was that? I don't know. I think it's my. I think this. It's this headset. Oh, I hope it didn't go out. No, I because that hear, was scary. I can hear loud and clear. Oh, to our listeners. Yeah. All right. I so, apologize. All right. And then, then what happened is in 1981 they came out with ColecoVision, and what ColecoVision did was. Back then, if you wanted to play video games, you had two ways. You had your home system, or you could go to the mall and go to the arcade. Wow. Right? And wow. There were, it was a quarter. Every game was a quarter. So you'd put a dollar in a machine, it would spit out four quarters. Mm-hmm. Or if you're lucky, five or six, if the machine was broke. And then you would put your quarters in, you'd play your games. And then when people wanted to play the games, they'd put their quarters up on top of the arcade game, like along the top. Oh, yeah. And like your quarter was there, and then, oh, it's my turn. I'm next. You know, like that. So the ColecoVision could actually like recreate those games in the arcade, which were always better than the games at home. And the ColecoVision, their, their thing was it brought the arcade experience home. And what they did, what Coleco did, was they licensed all the games from the arcade manufacturers, and they created an, you know, home, what would be called a home port. And these came out what were called cartridges. Right? And the cartridge had a little ROM chip in it. And you'd plug it into the system, and that's how you got your games. You know how much the games cost back then? Two dollars. I no. was going to say five. Jimmy, twenty-five. Thirty bucks. Twenty-nine ninety-nine at Toys R Us. Wow. You'd go into Toys R Us. They didn't even have them out because you know they didn't want kids to steal them. Right. Right. So they'd have them up on a wall, and you'd grab this ticket, and you'd pull the ticket, and then you'd go to the cashier, and you'd hand the cashier the ticket. And then you would get. Would then you had to go to some guy, you know, behind like who had a who had a vault, and he'd open the vault and he'd take out the game and they hand you your game. Wow! And that's how it that's how it worked at Toys R Us. A lot of Which wacky. No longer exists. A lot of wacky stuff going on there. I mean, how much did it cost? Thirty bucks for a game usually, oh, wow. and this is 1981. So thirty bucks that's in 1981 a was a pretty penny. So all I wanted was ColecoVision, right? Unless you got Zaxxon. Zaxxon was like fifty dollars. It was crazy. That was a game or a system? It was a game oh, wow. for the Coleco. But it was so good that it, it cost more. It cost to charge a premium. Yeah, they had some deal with Sega. They were getting a lot of Sega games. But the key was they had Donkey Kong. And Donkey Kong is, you know Mario? You know about Mario? I do know. Okay, so you know Mario, right? Donkey Kong uh, had Mario. It was the first game with Mario. And basically, he's got to climb up this... Uh, yeah, the ladder. Like he's got to climb ladders and get to the top levels. and save the girl, right? From Donkey Kong. And then, of course, Donkey Kong. Drop barrels. And yeah, you drop barrels. You got to jump over barrels. Whole thing. So this is my favorite game. So all I wanted was Donkey Kong, right? So that I told my mother it was ele- I was eleven years old, and I said I didn't want anything for Christmas except ColecoVision, and that was it. I didn't want anything else. I didn't want any other presents because all I wanted was that was Donkey Kong. 
You with me, Jimmy? Right? <laughs> so what happens? Christmas comes, and the ColecoVisions were extremely difficult to get. I okay? bet. They were extremely difficult to find because Coleco was like the worst company on the planet. Like, they couldn't stock things. They couldn't do it. They could promise a lot, you know? But they could never deliver. They couldn't deliver. They couldn't deliver. So... Um, my dad was a police officer, as you know. Mm-hmm. So he had lots of connections, knew lots of people at different stores and stuff like that. Like, you know, what? hey, you getting any ColecoVisions in? You know, if you get one, my kid wants one, you know? So whatever. But I'm hoping I'm going to get it, right? So now Christmas comes, and I open up all my presents. And there's a whole bunch of presents. And there's no ColecoVision. Okay. And I'm 11 years old. No ColecoVision. It's not there. Right? My brothers are opening up their garbage toys and they're loving them and whatever. They're very happy. Yeah. And I'm just sitting there like I'm very sad. So my mother hands me a card, like a handwritten card. And I knew that there was a problem getting these ColecoVisions out into the public. And I knew it was going to be difficult to come by. And I thought I didn't, you know, I thought that uh, this is the card telling me, you know, we're sorry. And this is like an IOU for ColecoVision. So she wrote the card and the whole thing. And she said, at the end of the card, she wrote, sorry to keep you over a barrel, but Mario is waiting. And I didn't even know what this meant. Like, sorry yeah. to keep you over a barrel, but Mario is waiting. I had no idea what this meant. And so then she's like, oh, let me see that card. And she grabs it. Or, I don't know if it was her or my dad, one or the other. And they said, oh, no, let me read it again. Sorry to keep you over a barrel, but Mario is waiting downstairs. And they'd already hooked it up oh my God. to the Zenith. You know what a Zenith is? No. It's a 27-inch television. Okay. They'd already hooked it up to the Zenith downstairs in the den. And my father had played Donkey Kong. He tested like, it out. All night long. <laughs> and they had it all set up. And he got it. He literally got the system at like midnight on, the ni- on Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve. Yeah. Wow. It, it might even have been later than that or, or something. Like it came in and he got it. And he set it up. And that's how I got my ColecoVision. And I was the happiest kid on the block. It's, I would hope so after that. Yeah, I got ColecoVision. It was great greatest game system ever uh and you know sadly not talked up enough so when i saw in the movie that he was playing a ColecoVision, it it basically what did i say what's the what's the expression i use i can't recall it, it what he calls my existence oh it just justifies it justifies my existence. existence yeah that it is basically exactly justifies my existence as, a, as an editor i don't know if that's true i read i was scrolling my phone for twitter before because i read a, a tweet the new yorkers review I didn't read the review. I oh, read Ready Player One. Yeah, and it was very interesting. I, I'm going to read it aloud, and you can just agree or disagree. Okay. Ready Player One is actually a tale of tyranny perpetuated by a cheerfully totalitarian predator who indoctrinates his victims by amusing them to death. And the movie's stifled horror is doubled by Steven Spielberg's obliviousness to it. Really? Uh, I can buy that. I can buy it. I mean, look. Without spoiling anything. They at the end of the movie, you know, you know how the kids today, Julianne, they're always looking at their phones, I, I do know, right? Yeah. And they're like in this other world where you know they're, uh, the whole concept of the movie is people live in the oasis, and the oasis is a, uh, a it's, video game, yeah, it's a virtual reality, you know. And uh, ultimately, what what the kid is trying to win is control over that virtual reality, and um, you know. Well, I don't want to give ever, I don't want to give everything away, but at the end, basically, they say that you know what, we're going to shut the uh, virtual reality down for two days a week. Uh, so two days a week, you can like read a book. What's a book? No. Um. Is it a kids' movie or? Uh, there's one f bomb. No, my son's eleven. He can live with that now. It's okay. Uh, and a couple of s s words. Mm. You know the s word. The shit. Couple we say those words on couple. On I don't podcast? know. It's a couple of shits, uh, f bombs and stuff like that. Lots of craps, but uh, it was. A, you know, I thought it was. I, a, I, I thought it was a fantastic I'm still movie. Down to see it. And more so now that it's been compared to a tyrannical tale. I mean, that <laughs> kind of boosted my interest. Yeah. Um, one thing we forgot, which which before we we maybe go. Wait, I, I we're not talking about Ready Player One anymore. Well, I was all excited. I we could. No. But you don't want to give it away. Yeah, and, and technically, a, yeah, I would just end up giving the whole movie. There is away. something that you do want to give away, 
at Atlantic Bagel Co. Oh, our, our sponsor, the Atlantic Bagel Company. Did you hear about this? I heard about it, but I want our listeners to hear about it. All right, so Atlantic Bagel Company is our, one of our sponsors. Oh, look, and we got some music. There it is. Come to the Atlantic Bagel Company. Monmouth now that County. is soothing. <laughs> Monmouth County, New Jersey. Now, Atlantic Bagel Company is one of our sponsors. Great sponsor. And what they're promising now Get this ready. is a once Get in a lifetime. Ready, it's once in a lifetime. The first person to come into the Atlantic Bagel Company on Route 35 in uh, Mama Township. I don't know what township it is. Right on Route 35. You can't miss it. Let's Google. You show up there. First thing you got to do is ask for my brother Scott. If he's there, which he may not be, he now, may not be. If, he, if he's not there. Then just buy a bagel and leave because nothing's going to happen. Yeah. But if he's there, you have to call to his attention and say, Hey, I heard about the contest on Brooklyn Paper Radio, and I win. And guess what you get? A lifetime supply. Free bagels for life. Of Atlantic Bagel Company bagels. Free bagels for life. Now, listen, that doesn't mean you call up and oh, give me a dozen bagels and pick them up. No, no. You come in, you get a bagel. Right. And it's one a day. Enough a, a, a bagel. But for life. A reasonable amount of bagels for life. For life. And you could probably get cream cheese on it. He might charge you for butter because my brother's a cheapskate. <laughs> I don't know. Over, over I don't know. But you go into the Atlantic Bagel Company in... Uh, in um, I think it's on Route 35. Route 35. Not the one in Atlantic Highlands. No. And no not the one in Rumson. Not the one in Rumson. Because if you walked into the one in Remsen and my brother Ross was there and you asked for a free bagel, he'd have a heart attack and die. Make sure it's the right Atlantic Bagel Company. Yeah, no, 35. Free bagels for life. Now, get driving. The question is, whose life? Now, the unfortunate little asterisk in this thing is it's not your life. Oh. It's the owners of Atlantic Bagel Company. Well, that seems fair because if they're not around, I would imagine there might not be bagels. Yeah, it could be the case. So if any one of those guys die, I'm talking about my brother Scott. I'm talking about my brother Russ. I'm talking about my dad. Now, my dad's the oldest. He's like 75. So, I mean. That's young nowadays. It is young nowadays. And he's, and he's still working every day. It's not like he's, you know. It's not like he's... Oh, we looked it up. He's not sitting around eating Atlantic bagels. Atlantic Bagel Company. There it is. Yeah, yeah. It's it's 283 uh, Route 35. It says Red Bank, but it's not Red Bank. Oh, wow. All the way down in Red Bank. It's not Red Bank. It's not Red Bank. There's no way it's Red Into Bank. Into a theater there. Like, the point is... Is that New Jersey? It's yeah. New Jersey. Monmouth County. So, the <laughs> my dad's the oldest. The oldest, possibly most likely to die first. Then there's my brother, Ross. All right? Now, he's two years older than me, so that makes him about 50, right? But he's already in a home. Now, granted, it's for an ankle surgery, but he's in an old age home. So, I could go at any time. And then there's my brother, Scott, who we always just assumed would be the first to die. That was the, Even though he's the youngest, that was the assumption. I could get him on the phone and talk to him. So, there's a lot of... But we don't, we're running out of time. I know we got work to do. There's a lot of wild cards. But the point is, is go now. Because they're all still alive. Right now, yeah, you're still you're free think, bagels. I think. Listen, the clock's ticking. Um, the clock is ticking. And that's a generous offer. He's very excited about it. Now, I want to point out that when he made this offer to me uh, on Easter as part of his package, you know, with us, uh, he had a few in him. All right? He had a few in him. My dad put out this wine. It was, I forget the name of it. It was fantastic, though. It was very good. And I and my brother was actually laying on the couch when he came up with this. So, oh, he may or may not remember, but we'll hold him to it. Listen, it's we broadcast it now, so it's out there. It's a real con. It's a real offer. All right. So I want to thank our sponsor, Atlantic Bagel Company, uh, for for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. He's very excited. Feeding our listeners, one listener. Yeah, and then my uncle Pete, he's got multiple sclerosis. Now he's in a home. And my brother Scott hasn't visited him yet. And my, you know, my dad's like, go and visit him. Your uncle's in home. And my brother Scott's like, no, 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 I'm not going to go visit him because I'm, you know, when I, I'm like the Grim Reaper. Oh. Whenever I visit someone who's in a home or something, they die within a week. So he should, so he should be away. thankful yeah. that, I'm not, that I'm not showing up. He shouldn't visit Ross either. And he bases this on the fact that um, 
my uncle Joe was in a home. Uh, he wasn't doing well, and my brother went to visit him, and he died the next day. He thinks he's the Grim Reaper. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Scott should stay away from McKinney Nursing Home, where six Brooklynites just celebrated their 100th birthday. Yeah, no, he's not going there. Because that would be a tragedy. <laughs> he's not going there. Um, <laughs> we can't have that. So stay But away. everything's safe in the bagel store. Everything's safe in the bagel store. It better be. I hope so. All right. I think, I think we're out of time, I, Tony. You know... I would do another 10 minutes just for that that sponsorship music, but no, I think we are <laughs> I out think of we're time. out of time. I want to thank our guest, uh, State Senator Brian Kavanaugh. Brian Kavanaugh. 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 I want to thank Julianne Cuba for coming on, taking time out of her day. Busy schedule. Go write another story. And I want to thank Tony Latuno. I want to thank, thank our board man who ended up doing a great job. It's all said and done. Yes. Jimmy or Johnny or whatever his name is. And, um, yeah, we'll see you next week on Brooklyn Paper Radio and Go Yankees. Goodbye. Keep hustling.